tonight on The Readout. The time for impeachment is the time when there's evidence linking President Biden, uh, if there's evidence, linking President Biden to a high crime or misdemeanor. That doesn't exist right now. Even conservative Congressman Ken Buck knows it's ridiculous that Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene are pushing to impeach President Biden before even establishing the smallest hint of wrongdoing. Also tonight, we're learning more about the Mar-a-Lago IT guy who could be a key witness for prosecutors in Trump's classified documents case. Plus, new reporting tonight on the Citizens United Supreme Court ruling and how Jenny Thomas, of all people, wife of Justice Clarence Thomas and right-wing court whisperer Leonard Leo seem to have a jumpstart in exploiting that ruling. Good evening, I'm Jason Johnson, in for Joy Reid, and we begin with the Republican-controlled House of Representatives returning to work this week for the first time since Donald Trump racked up two more criminal indictments. The now four-time indicted former president facing 91 federal and state charges. But instead of focusing on the 11 legislative days Congress has to fund the government, Speaker McCarthy and Trump's allies in Congress are raring to go to serve his legal defense and his 2024 campaign. They're agitating to start an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden based on just vibes and energy, apparently, because there's no evidence whatsoever. McCarthy's real boss, Marjorie Taylor Greene, is leading the charge, saying she won't support any measure to fund the government until the House votes to begin an impeachment inquiry. But even right-wing Freedom Caucus member Kim Buck called Marge's timeline absurd because, and these are his words, evidence doesn't actually exist. Never mind that Buck is just one of numerous Republicans who have admitted out loud that there's no evidence and it's just political theater. The divide between the right wing and the further, further ex-crispy right wing of the Republican caucus has McCarthy considering a devil's bargain. Horse trading and impeachment inquiry to the MAGA wing to avert a government shutdown. As Nora Berlansky points out, the fact that they're pushing for impeachment, even though they know it's bogus, is an indication that Republicans have become, quote, increasingly authoritarian and anti-democracy and increasingly committed to undermining and mocking, key, mocking forms of democratic accountability. With McCarthy saying last month that impeachment is a natural step forward, Democrats aren't taking Republican threats lying down. The White House has mobilized a war room to combat the evidence-free push to impeach. And House Democrats have built a defense team to counter the Republican nonsense, especially House Oversight Chairman James Comer's investigations. The ranking Democrat on the Oversight Committee, Congressman Jamie Raskin, has put out a memo calling Republican investigations a complete and total bust, an epic flop in the history of congressional investigations. And there's been a lot of floppish investigations. Adding that impeachment is a transparent effort to boost former President Trump's re-election prospects and distract from the overwhelming evidence of his criminal and corrupt conduct during his time in office. Joining me now to discuss all of this is Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida, a member of the House Oversight Committee, and former Republican Congressman David Jolly, who is no longer affiliated with that party. So, Congressman, I'm just going to start with this. Um, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she, she leads Kevin McCarthy around by the nose. We get that and understand it. Just from a practical, functional matter, how hard is it to set up an impeachment hearing? Like, this seems like a lot of legislative moving and shaking that would need to be done to even set this up, even though we know it's bogus to begin with. 
Yeah, well, I mean, look, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who came out just the other day and said that uh, she's recommending some states start succeeding from the union. So, you know, when when she starts her new country, she she can be in charge of impeachment uh, in, in that new place. But it, it's fascinating, right? We're, right, Jason, we're watching Freedom Caucus members fight amongst themselves over Joe Biden impeachment. I mean, I didn't have that on my bingo card that Joe Biden's impeachment would be dividing the Republican Party, but it's exactly where the status of the House Republicans are right now. They have no direction. They don't know whether they want to fund the government. They don't know whether they want to impeach the president. Uh, and, and to be quite honest, you know, I'm starting to feel bad for James Comer. These hearings have had, you know, low T and, you know, are just not connecting with the American people because they're just throwing darts at the board. And again, now you got Freedom Caucus members admitting no evidence on Joe Biden. I mean, that's the bumper sticker right there. Uh, David, this is the, the other part that, that sort of gets me. And I thought uh, Congressman Raskin's point was very clear that, you know, some of this is research. It's mocking impeachment. The impeachment process is supposed yeah. to be for obvious high crimes and misdemeanors, things that are so blatant that the entire public knows or understands them, things that are so blatant that they attack the core, the absolute core of our democracy. The idea that Republicans basically want to do this because they just don't like Joe Biden, doesn't that sort of make a mockery of what an impeachment is supposed to be about anyway? Yeah, Jason, I'm glad you framed it that way, because we are about to see the fitness of Speaker Kevin McCarthy put to test. We're about to see his personal medal and integrity put to the test. We're about to see his ability to be a prudent custodian of the House put to the test. But this goes all the way back to the corrupt bargain that Kevin McCarthy made with Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and all of the others to become Speaker after 15 votes. And I believe the deal was struck then in January. I don't think it's a deal in the works now. I think Kevin McCarthy, whether it was explicit or not, he knew they were going to have to have a debt ceiling raise that he was going to lose. Kevin tried to spin it like a win and say there were conservative victories, but the Freedom Caucus called his bluff and said, no, there aren't. So they're already smarting from the early summer debt limit increase. Now you're looking at the annual budget breaking down, funding the government September 30th. And here's why Kevin McCarthy will have to move forward with going after Joe Biden. There is not a budget that could pass right. just with House Republicans and get the support of Senate Republicans. This actually isn't about even compromising with Senate Democrats or Joe Biden. There is not a hard right conservative budget that could get 218 Republicans in the House that would get Mitch McConnell to vote for it, which leaves Kevin with saying, OK, the only way, whether we have a shutdown or not, the only way to keep the government funded is going to be with probably 175 Republicans and 100 plus Democrats and Joe Biden's signature. And then how does Kevin McCarthy remain speaker after that? Likely to move forward with an impeachment that he agreed to last January. Congressman Moskowitz, you know, speaking of the Senate, the Senate is obviously the second level, right? If you're going to do an impeachment, you have a vote, then you have to send it to see if the person can be removed. I want to play you some sound uh, by Senator Fetterman from Pennsylvania about what he thinks of the idea being floated around amongst Republicans in the House as to what impeachment is and get your thoughts on the other side. Go ahead and do it. I dare you. You know? You know, if you can find if you can find the votes, you know, go ahead and you know, you're gonna lose. Your man has what three or four indictments now and, and you're gonna so like, like I said, you know, like sometimes you just gotta go colder colder Congressman, I, I think what, what Fetterman is also pointing out here is not only is it gonna fail, but like 
I don't think the country has an appetite for this. I mean, I, I don't I, look. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think that you could try and impeach the president because of Hunter Biden. I don't think you can try and impeach the president because he pulled the troops out of Afghanistan. Is it some of the failure of this, the idea that the American people heading into the 2024 election, this might be the last thing that they really care to pay attention to? Well, unfortunately for the Republicans, the failure is, is that it's just, it's the truth. The truth is Joe Biden did nothing wrong. I mean, Senator Fetterman is 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 right there, which is, you know, they've been talking about it. They've been talking about it. They've spent all tens of millions of dollars, I'm sure, of taxpayer money running all these investigations that have, have proven nothing. And by the way, if the polling showed that the American people wanted Joe Biden impeached, OK, you can be sure Republicans would have launched this inquiry already. But as soon as these articles got filed, they buried them in committee. They buried them in Homeland Security. They didn't want to talk about it. you got Republican members, moderate members, Freedom Caucus members coming out trying to delay impeachment. That tells me they know this is not good for them if they want to hold on to the majority in the House. And so, you know, it's fascinating to watch from a political science standpoint, but it's horrible if you're trying to keep the, the government open and get us funded so that, you know, we can keep the economy going and, and you know, and make sure that the, the American people have a good place to work and good jobs and all of that jazz. I mean, this is this is what the House Republicans said that they were going to do when they got powered. Oh, when you finally give us power, let us look, we're going to show you what we can do with the House. And meanwhile, they haven't passed a single piece of substantive legislation to help the American people, not like the infrastructure bill, not like the Chips and Science Act, not like the infrastructure, I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act, nothing. They don't have a single piece of legislation to stand on. And so now impeachment, which is what they fed their primary voters, they can't even deliver on that. But look, they, they sold themselves to Donald Trump. They 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 want to do this. You know, Donald Trump is demanding this, of course, because he wants right. to run against somebody else he can say is impeached. So it's equal on both sides. So, you know, I look forward to James Comer and all these folks filling out an FEC form for an in-kind contribution to the Trump campaign, because that's all these hearings are. They're an extension of the campaign. You know, as, as a poli-sci professor at Morgan State, I, I love numbers. And I think the numbers, you, you make a good point, Congressman, I think the numbers on this also don't really play out in the Republicans' favor. There's a recent poll from the public policy polling that found in 18 Republican-held districts won by Biden in 2020, 56% of voters think an impeachment inquiry would be more of a partisan political stunt, including 55% of independent voters, while only 41% think it would be more of a serious effort to investigate important problems. Look, David, you're not in office anymore. But if you hear those numbers, if you are a member of Congress in one of those districts, do you want leadership forcing you into this impeachment hearing heading into an election year? Absolutely not. And, and here's the affirmation of that. The easier vote in this whole impeachment question is the vote to open an impeachment inquiry. Right? That's just suggesting the House should go look at the facts. They don't even have the votes to open the inquiry. And they're jumping to an actual impeachment vote and doing a whip count there. And they're nowhere close to that. Kevin McCarthy very likely could lose the House if they pursue impeachment. And he knows that because consider what would be put in front of the American people. Bad decisions in the personal life of Hunter Biden. We all know that. He's owned it. He wrote about it in a book. But they actually haven't even proven that Hunter Biden did anything illegal when it came to his representation or work with foreign clients. The Department of Justice didn't even find anything that Hunter Biden did that was illegal related to representing clients in front of the government, right? They, they brought up charges on a gun charge and on a tax charge, but not about his representation. So they haven't even made the son culpable for an illegal act, much less than tied it to the president. So do Republicans really want to spend the next year 
talking about the president's son and his personal failings, that frankly, failings similar to probably those that have touched many American families, or do they want to focus on bread and butter Republican issues, which you can still squabble with from the border, the taxes to the economy? I think Kevin McCarthy would rather focus on the latter. But as I said, this will be a test of his fitness, because I think ultimately he will cower to the far right to protect his own speakership. Congressman, I want to make sure that we end on this, because I think it's key. Well, look, while the Republicans run the House, I do think it's always important that we focus on what Congress is actually doing. So on the Democratic side right now, even with McCarthy's leadership, even with Marjorie Taylor Greene basically, you know, playing with his puppet strings, what are Democrats hoping to do with this new session that's come back? Obviously, the debt ceiling, but there are other critical things on the Democratic agenda that you're trying to push for for the remainder of this year. Well, look, I mean, the first right off the bat is we got to keep the government open. Right. Right. So Democrats are looking to fully fund the government. We're looking to to fund, you know, to continue to fund uh, the Ukraine uh, issue out with uh, Russia to make sure that they have uh, the weapons that they need. Uh, We're looking to fund FEMA. Right. The disaster recovery fund has run out of money. We got to make sure cities and counties have the money that they need, that reimbursement money so that they can respond, recover and rebuild after we have these disasters. We're looking at being the adults in the room and being responsible. Uh, and so, listen, I, I think the next three weeks are going to be fascinating. It's going to be interesting to see as the Republicans tear each other apart, how the Democrats uh, in the House, uh, you know, handle that. Also, obviously, we, we're, we got the Senate. You got Republicans and Democrats in the Senate unified uh, on a lot of the budget issues. And so you could see a showdown uh, between the House and the Senate. You know, for the last nine months, uh, Leader Jeffries has talked about how model Republicans are leading us down this horrible path and that we're going to be uh, we're going to be the responsible ones in the room. And I think that's what you're going to see from Democrats in September. David Jolly, very quickly, Joe Biden, he's hearing that Republicans are trying to do this in the House. Vice President Harris, does he make a statement about it? Does he say, hey, bring it, come with it, pull up with your impeachment hearing because I know I'll beat it? Or is this something that the president says, hey, I'm above the fray, I'm going to keep moving, heading into 2024, where whoever you guys put up against me, I'm going to beat them? Stay above it. Focus on an economy that lifts all Americans, solving the problems for families at their kitchen table, protecting the constitutional order and constitutional norms that Donald Trump wants to shred. The contrast will be obvious to the American people. Thank you, Congressman Jared Moskowitz. Really appreciate you joining the show this evening and former Congressman David Jolly, one of my favorite people. Thank you for joining us on The Readout. Up next, brand new reporting on a key witness in the Trump Mar-a-Lago case who told prosecutors that the disgraced former president asked him to delete surveillance footage. The readout continues right after this. As Donald Trump's legal cases involving his attempts to overturn the 2020 election continue to move forward in federal and state courts, another of his four indictments appears to have hit the brakes. That's the federal case involving the classified documents Trump took to Mar-a-Lago. It's also the one being overseen by a Trump-appointed judge, Eileen Cannon, who had earlier rulings in the case giving favorable treatment to Trump overturned. Cannon's last hearing was on July 18th, and nothing, nothing is scheduled, even though there are outstanding issues like the protective order covering the handling of those classified documents, as well as hearings on the potential conflicts of interest facing two defense attorneys. What makes this case so damning for Trump beyond the issue of him retaining classified documents, which, counter to Trump's repeated protests, he did not have the right to do, is the obstruction efforts that even conservative legal analysts admit 
doesn't look good for the twice impeached, four times indicted former president. Likely key witness in that case is also a unique figure in the Trump world. Lucille Tavares, Mar-a-Lago's IT director, and the person, according to prosecutors, who co-defended Carlos de Oliveira, came to asking for the security footage to be deleted at Trump's request. As New York Times points out, what makes Tavares unique is, quote, he is the first Trump employee facing prosecution in the classified documents case known to have signed a cooperation agreement to avoid indictment. In fact, he appears to be the first of any of the dozens of people entangled in Trump's indictments to be known to do that. Meanwhile, breaking late today in the federal 2020 election interference case, Trump's lawyers filed a motion calling for Judge Tanya Chutkin to recuse herself from the case, arguing that statements made by the judge during the past sentencing hearings for January 6th defendants call into question her impartiality and ultimately taint this case. Trump's lawyer, John Laura, writes, quote, Judge Chutkin has, in connection with other cases, suggested that President Trump should be prosecuted and imprisoned Such statements, made before this case began and without due process, are inherently disqualifying. Joining me now to discuss is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, University of Michigan law professor and MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you so much for joining us evening, Barbara. Look, I'm not a lawyer. I always say that. Not a lawyer. Don't play one on TV. So I got to ask non-lawyery questions here. What is the line at which previous statements that a judge has made become disqualifying for future cases. Because if I play this completely objectively, in theory, you would always want a judge that's never said anything outside of legal writings, right, on your upcoming case. But, you know, the Republicans here in Trump are saying, hey, well, because she mentioned this in a previous case, she's not qualified in this one. What do you really have to say to make yourself potentially disqualified or make it a legitimate issue, ethics issue, for you to recuse yourself from covering a case? Well, Jason, it's a very um, uh, circular standard because it is whether a reasonable person would tend to doubt the impartiality of the judge. So it really is a case-by-case determination. But I think the kinds of allegations that are, the statements that are at issue here are simply statements that the judge made about people who were not charged when she was making decisions about sentencing of the defendants before her. Many of them took the defense of you shouldn't blame me or hold it against me because I was just doing what the president told me to do. And she said things like, you know, no one else is here before me. You're the person here before me. I can't make decisions based on whether someone should be charged, uh, even if I have opinions on those things. And so the statements are so general that I just can't imagine that she or any other judge would believe that they rise to that standard of causing a reasonable person to believe that she cannot be impartial in this case. Now, whether or not she's impartial is, is, is not just sort of important in this case, but impartiality is something that we care about in general. We have this situation now with Judge Eileen Cannon looking at the, the documents case in Mar-a-Lago, who hasn't scheduled anything, hasn't had a hearing since July 18th. I understand that sometimes the grind, you know, legal system grinds and is slow and everything else like that. But is it uncommon? I mean, here we are uh, almost, you know, two months, six weeks, two months later, and This is a case that has to do with national security issues. Is it strange that Eileen Cannon hasn't done anything to advance this case? I think the one thing I would be looking for in this case is the hearing on the Classified Information Procedures Act. 
there was a request by the government that that be handled so that everybody would have an understanding going forward of how that material would be addressed. Um, now, it may be that the reason she has not yet scheduled that hearing, it was once scheduled and then uh, canceled, is that the defense lawyers do not yet have their security clearances, and so the government is not yet able to turn over the material. That could be a reason not to hold that. But I, I imagine, though, if you're the government, your view would be, well, we don't need to give the material before we set the rules for handling the material. So I imagine there is some frustration on their part. Now, she has set a trial date, and so it seems that things are moving in, in a reasonably good pace. But that is the one hearing I would be looking for to be scheduled sooner rather than later. So here's the thing. It's also interesting to me, and again, I, I, we can't judge whether a judge is going to be partial, impartial, but Eileen Cannon was a Trump-appointed judge. Um, the New York Times is reporting that in the case of Yusil Tavares, his testimony could be excluded from the classified documents case. Quote, last month, Mr. Tavares' former lawyer, Stanley Woodward Jr., asked Judge Eileen M. Cannon, who was overseeing the matter in Fort Pierce, Florida, to strike Mr. Tavares' account from the record, complaining that it had been improperly obtained through potential grand jury abuse. Mr. Woodward argued that after indictments were issued, grand jury proceedings cannot be used as subterfuge to place pressure on a witness in order to obtain information, suggesting that had happened to Mr. Tavares. Look, we don't know how she's going to rule on this, right? But it, it seems to me, do you think that some of these lawyers, these defense attorneys, these MAGA-connected defense attorneys are gearing up to make arguments towards a judge that they think is more likely to rule in their favor? Because it seems to me that the IT guy who was asked to erase things, I don't see how you couldn't have his testimony in a case about hiding important federal documents. Yeah. So first, I don't know that there is any basis to believe that there's anything improper going on here. Of course, there are some sealed documents in this case. Maybe there are facts that are unknown to the public. But based on the public record, using a grand jury to investigate additional crimes or defendants is perfectly appropriate. And we know that that grand jury resulted in the superseding indictment that added Carlos de Oliveira to this case. So on its face, it appears that everything was done properly. Now, defendants file motions all the time. Uh, some are well-grounded. Some are just, you know, hoping that they're throwing up a Hail Mary and that they get a favorable ruling. And so uh, I imagine that the, the lawyers in this case will be very aggressive in filing any motion they can think of. And we'll get a chance to see what uh, Judge Cannon is all about as she makes these decisions. But you are absolutely right. And make no mistake, a judge has incredible power in a case to make these kinds of pretrial decisions that could really gut the government's case. The defendant typically cannot appeal these pretrial rulings. The government typically can, but that, that brings with it lengthy delay that is often not in the best right. interests of the case. And so we'll see how she proceeds in responding to these motions. So jumping from Georgia, uh, Florida to Georgia really quickly, uh, we've got Trump aide Mark Meadows. He's, he's basically asking a judge to pause the stay on his ability to move his case uh, from state court to federal court. Look, I, it seems pretty clear to me that this is a situation where he's not going to get what he wants, but he's trying a delay tactic. To, to sort of follow what you said in the last question, Barbara, how much time could this delay get him? Like, it doesn't seem likely that it's going to be reevaluated. Is it going to give him another two months? Is it going to give him another six weeks? What's the value and what's the length of time of a delay that he might expect for, for asking for this sort of stay? 
You know, in an ordinary case, you might see a, a, an issue that goes up to the Court of Appeals, uh, many, many months delay. I think in a case like this, we will see an expedited decision by the 11th Circuit, which is the same uh, circuit, by the way, that did the expedited appeal in the search warrant matter in Mar-a-Lago. They acted quickly at that time. I expect them to act quickly in this case as well. So I think it's more like days or weeks and not months of delay. But the statute specifically addresses this situation. And it says that while this removal procedure is going on, the state court case should proceed. It should not be stayed. And so I think this flies in the face of the specified law in the statute. And for that reason, I don't think this will be stayed. And I think the state court will be allowed to proceed while he pursues these appeals. Thank you so much, Barbara Quay, for joining us tonight on The Readout. Up next, stunning new reporting that Jenny Thomas, the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, collaborated with others on the right to take advantage of the Supreme Court's Citizen United ruling before the ruling came down. We'll be right back to discuss it on The Readout. I want this to be really clear. There has not been a more destructive force in the American jurisprudence in the last 30 years than Clarence Thomas and his wife. They, they are the most destructive force in American jurisprudence. Those two together, they form like a Voltron of evil. Yesterday, the extent of just how thorough and intentional their efforts have been came into light in new reporting from Politico. And you won't be surprised to hear that some of the key players involved, including included Texas billionaire Harlan Crow, Federalist Society founder Leonard Leo, and Trump political consultant Kellyanne Conway. Shocker. What Politico uncovered was that the justice's wife was essentially running a political organization that will push conservative ideas through the courts and into her husband's lap. The group called Liberty Central was set up while Barack Obama was president to target the Affordable Care Act and was launched just before the Supreme Court ruling on Citizens United, which paved the way for unlimited dark money from groups like hers in our elections. It was speeded up and funded by Harlan Crow and headed by Leonard Leo. Jenny Thomas was forced to step down from the organization because she got in trouble for calling Anita Hill and demanding an apology from Hill for recounting her experience of being sexually harassed by Clarence Thomas when she was at the EEOC. Don't worry, Jenny Thomas launched a new nonprofit consulting group, and according to Politico, Leonard Leo found a different way to funnel her cash with no apparent paper trail. Kellyanne Conway would serve as the conduit for that. Leo arranged for between $80,000 and $100,000 to go to Jenny Thomas through Conway for unspecified work in 2011 and 2012. As she stepped back, Leo reactivated a nonprofit group, the Judicial Education Project, which would take a very public role and file numerous, numerous amicus curiae briefs before his friend's Supreme Court. Here's where things get tricky, and trust me, this is tricky. The Judicial Education Project is tax-exempt as a charity, and has to file forms to keep that status. It is a legal requirement that their funds are used for charitable or educational purposes. Politico's reporting and subsequent probes have raised questions that Leo's groups have taken advantage of tax disclosure laws to send additional business and funds to Jenny Thomas, amongst other activists. Joining me now to pull all of this apart 
is Melissa Murray, NYU law professor, MSNBC legal analyst, co-host of the Strict Scrutiny Strict Scrutiny podcast, and fellow Wahoo. Thank you so much, Melissa, for joining me this evening. Look, I I, I always start with this, even before we get to this specific story. Can you tell me why Clarence Thomas? <laughs> is not going to get impeached. I know we talk about this all the time, but every single time I hear this guy, every single time we hear about more corruption, I'm singing, I'm I'm Backstreet Boys, tell me why, why can't this guy just be impeached? Why aren't we doing anything about this? Well, he can't be impeached because there would not be a supermajority in the Senate to do so. But you are exactly right and your intuition is correct. Any other justice at any other, quote unquote, normal time in history who is associated with this level of questionable activity, this level of skepticism for his impartiality, there would be clarion calls for his resignation. And if no resignation was forthcoming, there would be calls for his impeachment. Um, This is not something Thurgood Marshall could have gotten away with. Um, This is far more than Abe Fortas resigned for. But yet, Here we are, and there seems to be no check on that which the Thomases can be associated with and continue to have Justice Thomas serve on the Supreme Court. You know, Thomas once wrote uh, in 1991 uh, during his confirmation, you know, buffeted by sexual harassment allegations. He said that he and his wife were brought closer together. The fiery trial through which we pass had the effect of melding us into one being, an amalgam, as we like to say. Now, I call it corruption Voltron, but I think the fact that Thomas himself has been very clear about the fact that, you know, where Jenny's politics begins and his end, that there is no space, there is no difference. Is there something that bare minimum, at least the government should be saying publicly regarding any of his rulings? Look, if there's not a supermajority to get him removed from the bench, why is it that Republicans who have ethics and Democrats who are concerned about democracy aren't banging the doors on this every single time he makes a ruling because nothing that this man says can be trusted if he's in the pocket of his wife and her corrupt MAGA friends. To be clear, the Thomases have said conflicting things over the years. Um, They've said that although they are best friends melded together in this crucible of conservative grievance, they do not discuss the work that he does in the court, nor does he discuss with her her work as an independent consultant for conservative causes. Um, But again, you know, that may belie uh, what some might take as a a little bit of fiction. Um, You know, it's hard to say what spouses do and do not talk about. But leaving aside whether or not there is an uncomfortable association between his dealings and hers, it is the fact of the optics that this looks so bad. It doesn't actually have to be any impropriety. It's just the mere fact that it could appear to the ordinary member of the public that Justice Thomas perhaps is in the bag for some of the causes with which his wife is associated. And that is enough to bring disrepute on the court, on the court's decisions, and indeed should be enough to inspire those in Congress who have some oversight to this other branch of government to say something about it. But yet we've heard precious little. And and Melissa, this is another key part about this. We keep hearing about these different consulting companies that Jenny Thomas is a part of. She starts one group, she steps down, she starts another. It's it's basically like a New York Street shell game. Hey, where's she getting paid? Where's she getting paid? Find a dollar, find a dollar, find a dollar. Is, is there 
a, a possibility that Congress could at least push for more requirements for reporting of spouses' income? Is there a way that we can go after Jenny Thomas where at least all the different ways that she seems to be bringing in income through these shadow organizations that pop up every five minutes that also seem to have insight as to what's going to be coming down to court? Is there a way she could be more held more accountable, even if you can't go after Clarence Thomas himself? I think that's a terrific place to start. I mean, one of the things that was so interesting about the Citizens United decision that you mentioned, that decision from 2010, was that Justice Kennedy, who wrote for the majority, assumed that where there was greater money flowing in from all different sides of the political spectrum, there would also be greater transparency. Interestingly, Justice Thomas filed a separate opinion in that case in which he disclaimed the prospect of such disclosures on the view that it would chill political contributions and political speech. Um, But again, that kind of transparency is exactly the sort of thing that you want associated with the Supreme Court. And so, again, there have been so many questions this year about ethical lapses among the justices that, at a bare minimum, having greater transparency about where the justice's money comes from, where the money that is sort of brought into their broader family kitty comes from, would be very welcome. And again, would simply be a step toward transparency as opposed to any step to take down a particular justice. I want to ask this very quickly, because, look, People who are professionals, they tend to have relationships with other professionals. Lawyers marry other lawyers. Doctors, politicians marry people, everything else like that. We have this situation down, as recent reporting from Jezebel, a judge deciding the fate of abortion in Florida is married to the state rep who sponsored the six-week ban, and they're not recusing themselves. You know, you have judges that are elected, that are related to politicians. We have politicians who are married to members of the media. It's not like we can tell people that they can't love and be involved with who they want to love. But is there a possibility, even when looking at this case in Florida, that a a more ethical, responsible government could say, hey, look, if you are sharing a house and a home and a bed with somebody, you probably shouldn't be ruling on any kind of legislation that they're putting forward? Is that a possibility, ethically? Again, in the federal courts, lower federal court judges, not Supreme Court justices, are bound by a pretty loose, but nonetheless, they are bound by a code of ethics that would require recusal in certain cases like that one. You're not allowed to hear a case where a member of your family would be a party. And various states have also judicial codes of ethics that would require them to disclose that information and perhaps recuse themselves as well. And again, if your spouse is closely associated with legislation that you are now ruling on the constitutionality of, it does seem to be too close an association. And again, it doesn't have to be the case that you're on the bag for your wife, but it right. is the case that the optics of it look poor to someone else on the outside. Yeah, he, he's in the bag like leftover fries in the bottom of a thing for McDonald's. Thank you, Melissa Murray, so much for joining us tonight on The Readout. I appreciate it. Coming up next... This weekend, Vice President Kamala Harris was talking about abortion and her critics and hosting a celebration to commemorate the 50th anniversary of hip hop. I was there and I'll tell you all about it next on The Readout. Hip-hop may be one of the world's most influential cultural forces and one of the biggest exports from the United States. But it's not every day you see the likes of Dougie Fresh, Slick Rick, Remy Ma at a house party hosted by the Vice President of the United States. On Saturday, Vice President Kamala Harris held a celebration of hip-hop's 50th anniversary in her very own backyard, which included common freestyling, shown here in a video posted by the Vice President herself. Here's what she had to say about the genre's influence on pop culture. Hip-hop culture is America's culture. It is a genre 
It is music and melody and rhyme. Yes. And hip hop is also an ethos of strength and self-determination, uh -huh. uh -huh. of ambition and aspiration, yes. of pride, power, and purpose. I was there, too, along with my next guest, known commonly in the ATL as Aaron 3000, but to you as Aaron Haynes, MSNBC contributor and editor-at-large for the 19th. Aaron, um, we got out of the rain together uh, after Saturday, but I have to say, you, you've done some really great work on Vice President Harris. You've done some very great work on, on how she's looked at and what her influence is and how she's a lot of times kind of underestimated. Just talk a little bit about how significant it was for the vice president to have a party where Lil Wayne showed up at her house and she was dancing to it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely quite a moment in uh, the vice president's tenure. But look, I think, as she said, she wanted to celebrate this most American musical genre uh, in the highest offices, really legitimize hip hop as, as a culture, the cultural statement that it is at, at this 50th anniversary milestone. And so uh, I think because of her identity, she's somebody that grew up in the hip hop era, literally talked about how she took two short mixtapes to Howard University. Don't think we ever saw a vice president of the United States uh, make that kind of a statement. But uh, but that's who she is. And, and she wanted to bring that uh, to the White House. I mean, to the vice president's uh, residence. And, and so, uh, yeah, but definitely not something that, that I thought we would have we would have seen uh, during during his tenure, but something that absolutely makes sense, given who she is, given where hip hop is. Oh, yeah. We never thought hip hop would make it this far. Um, but the other exactly. thing, Aaron, <laughs> is I, I was amazed, you know, given some of the negative uh, comments and memes about Vice President Harris and her connection to the African-American community, I, I thought it was fascinating that you not only had just sort of mainstream entertainment, Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick, but having somebody like Lil Wayne who has some occasionally controversial lyrics, having somebody like Fat Joe, who has some occasionally controversial lyrics. What does that say about the branding of the vice president that she's like, look, I can have people who talk about police, people who talk about sort of graphic issues, and I can still appreciate that and maintain my prestige as vice president of the United States. Really, Jason, you're not going to bring up too short? You're not, you're not going not gonna to reference <laughs> that? Okay. Um, I was going to do that, but it's going to be to you. As an AT alien, just want to say, you know, I was personally celebrating the 15th anniversary of the recession. Just, just need to put that out there. Um, very much appreciated Jeezy's presence uh, and, and the South representation uh, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip hop. But look, um, you know, I think, you know, she, something else that she said during her remark, uh, she talked about how, uh, you know, this is the music of the streets. This is, uh, you know, Black folks telling stories about their realities, right? And sometimes that reality is not always uh, clean. It's definitely not always sanitized, but that doesn't mean uh, that, that it does not need to be expressed. That does not mean that it is not also part of the art form. And so I think, you know, choosing to include that, uh, I'm sure maybe, uh, you know, there might have been some folks that preferred that, that, that uh, some of the profanity might not have been used uh, on that stage. But again, uh, these, are, these are artists that are reflecting uh, their realities that are reflecting the realities of millions of black Americans who, I mean, by the way, many of whom happen to also be voters. I want to add, you know, uh, there was recent conversations on Face the Nation uh, where the vice president talked about why people attack her. I just want to play this sound really quick and get your thoughts on the other side. 
at which week of pregnancy? We need to put back in place the protections of Roe versus Wade. You we know are why not, I'm asking you this I, question, but, though. Because we're not trying to, but we're not trying to do anything that did not exist before June of last year. Republicans say the lack of a precise date in cutting it off. You know this. They say that allows Democrats to perform abortions up until, you know, birth. Which is ridiculous. Which is statistically not accurate. And it's ridiculous. We're right up on a break. Talk about how important it is that the vice president could be from both that event to answering these key questions out about abortion, given how important it's going to be in 2024. Uh, Because you can be somebody that's of the hip hop generation who also is somebody who is concerned about uh, the issue of reproductive access. Uh, not unlike many voters in this country. So she's somebody that can speak to these issues and she's speaking to an audience that is also holding both of those issues. Thank you so very much, Aaron 3000, Aaron Haynes, for joining us this evening. This is Jason Johnson on The Readout. We'll be right back after this break. In Anchorage, Alaska, President Biden delivered remarks on the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. Along with the somber remembrance of almost 3,000 people killed, many of us are reflecting on the legacy of 9-11 and all of its different forms. There really is no aspect of American culture untouched by this tragedy. And not just because of the lives lost here or in the Middle East or the wars of terror that followed. Next month, we will mark the 22nd anniversary of the Patriot Act, which armed law enforcement with new tools to detect, observe, and prevent terrorism. It was also the first of many troubling changes that allowed the government to essentially spy on ordinary innocent Americans, expanding its authority to monitor communications, keep tabs on people online, or in the case of New York, using toll-paying technology to track and record New Yorkers' movements was once considered a gross violation of civil liberties, shifted dramatically after 9-11. And it was the shift that was hastily made during an excruciating moment for this nation. But two decades later, it's long overdue that Americans examine and chip away at the creation, maintenance, and most importantly, the acceptance of the United States as a surveillance state. The government's ability to conduct domestic surveillance under the guise of catching the terrorists has actually turned regular people into suspects. And that boom in big surveillance remains a prevailing legacy of 9-11 22 years later. That's tonight's readout. Joe Reed is back tomorrow.